Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and the host of The Last Symptom. I was just watching my dog back here on the video that I'm making as I'm recording this show here and watching him trying to get comfy on his uh, on my chair, actually. And ain't it interesting how long it takes them to get comfortable. It just cracks me up. Well, he's comfortable. I'm comfortable. I hope you all are comfortable as well. And I'm happy to have you here back with me on the last symptom podcast got a few things for your interesting things to talk to you about today uh i gotta be honest uh i don't didn't have a really coherent show put together this week just because you know so cl- close to the holidays and everything uh i've just had my hands unusually fooled so some of you might have thought that perhaps i'd forgotten about you this week but i i did not and uh it is technically Friday or Thursday for me, so I am truly recording this on Thursday night. Most of y'all will probably hear it on Friday, especially you folks down under. But even those of you here in the United States with me probably going to hear this on Friday. That's all right. Uh, before we get into today's show, let me tell you about thelastsymptom.com. Of course, that's my website full of free resources, and there are some paid resources there too. Paid resources are what go a real long way and allow me to continue doing this work. Uh, that, along with donations, donations continue to be particularly helpful for me and always a pleasant surprise when one comes through. So I want to thank you uh, for obvious reason, reasons because of the topics that I discuss here. I can't uh, give shout-outs and name people and stuff like that, but uh, you know who you are, and, and I just want to thank you, and I want to thank anybody who's considering it. The paid services that I offer, one-on-one phone conversations with me, one-on-one Zoom video conversations with me, and also the uh, Last Symptom Fundamentals course, which is a two-week intensive pre-recorded video course. If you've ever seen somebody take a, a pre-recorded college course online or anything like that, it's, it's of that nature, so it's nothing too scary. I do want to say that because people in my community often the holidays are very difficult for them uh, in emotional ways that I will be available throughout the holidays to talk to people both one-on-one and also on my education group which is located on locals and if you're interested in joining that it's www. 
I don't know why I keep forgetting to include the dot. www.thelastsymptom.locals, L-O-C-A-L-S, dot com. We'd love to have you over there. To get us started today, I want to tell you about beautiful Jim Key, spelled just like it sounds. Beautiful Jim, J-I-M, Key, K-E-Y. What do you reckon I'm talking about? Well, beautiful Jim Key was a horse. That's right, he was a, a famous horse around the turn of the century. And uh, I got this information here off Wikipedia. I don't remember where I come across the reference to beautiful Jim Key in the first place, but uh, I just drew my attention. Love that name. And I did some more research on this horse, and here's what I found. I thought I'd share it with you. He was, uh, as I say, a famous horse, a performing horse. His promoters claimed that beautiful Jim Key could read and write, make change with money, do arithmetic for numbers below 30, and cite Bible passages, but not just any Bible passages. Bible passages where horses were mentioned, <laughs> or where Bible passages where horses, um, there was a focus on, on the horse and the horse doing something particularly interesting or righteous. His trainer, doctor, which is in quotes, so probably wasn't a real doctor. Well, let's say that a traditionally trained and educated doctor. William Key was a former slave, a self-trained veterinarian, and a patent medicine salesman. There's some interesting things about this Mr. William Key, this former slave and self-trained veterinarian. The most interesting thing that stood out to me was that he used only patience and kindness in teaching beautiful Jim Key the horse and he never used a whip which was probably unusual for that time as far as trainers go the horse performed at large venues from Atlantic City to Chicago Jim Key was supposedly intelligent enough that he could calculate mathematical problems possibly even trigonometry I'm not so sure that I buy into that but I'm sure they had a trick down that made it appear so. The president at the time, William McKinley, got to see beautiful Jim Key perform at an exposition in Tennessee. And when he did, he commented that it was an example of what kindness and patience could accomplish. If you'd be interested in learning more about beautiful Jim Key, the way you spell it is J-I-M, first name, last name K-E-Y. I guess the first name is beautiful. So just beautiful like it's spelled and then Jim Key. Very interesting. I love pulling out uh, real stories from the past like that and becoming uh, acquainted with them uh, for, out, of, out of nowhere. 
we live in a world you know that's uh it's always fascinated by the new and what's coming in the future and all that but uh it's like uh movies right you know that i love movies especially during the pandemic uh you know the really the heart of the pandemic when everything was shut down hollywood was shut down and all that and so there were a lot of new movies coming out of very high quality and in the numbers that you know, we were typically used to one thing that I thought was wonderful was being able to go back in time back into the, the vault of all the movies that were made all the way back into the early 1900s and stuff like that and man I made some wonderful discoveries back there and so I just feel like you know there is an advantage to uh, to being born now and living now is that uh, not only are we seeing these wonderful things, these futuristic things come into play, but we have this vast library of media from the past uh, that we can go to and learn about fresh, just like as if it were released today or or created today, even though it was created a hundred years ago. You know, it's new to us. Um, books like that, uh, music like that, music especially. You know, if if you're only listening to today's songs, you're missing out. You really need to broaden out, turn to the past, and see how the past has influenced all of today's music. Uh, it's pretty amazing. From the Epoch Times, an article about the health benefits of being grateful. I bookmarked this weeks ago. Um, let's see, it was published on December 4th. So I come across it, I think, on December 4th. I bookmarked it, printed it off, thought I'd like to share this with my audience, and so the day has come. And there are things I had to correct within this article, I mean, for my audience as I was going through it, but it's still a lot of value to it. Uh, the Profound Health Benefits of Being Grateful. This was written by Joseph Mercola from the Epic Times. Gratitude is a simple practice that can have profound effects on your health and well-being. You're going to be amazed at just how true that is, according to this article. Positive effects linked to gratitude include social, psychological, and physical benefits which increase the more you make gratitude a regular part of your daily routine. The limits to gratitude's health benefits are really in how much you pay attention to feeling and practicing gratitude, said neuroscientist Glenn Fox. He's a gratitude expert. Did you know that there was such a thing? Well, apparently there is. A gratitude expert at the University of Southern California boy how do you get that job becoming a gratitude expert well probably the same way you get to be a, a borderline personality disorder authentic recovery expert um, one thing I want to correct here so the article says uh, this neuroscientist uh, named Glenn Fox in his statement there he says uh, it's related to how much you pay attention to feeling and practicing gratitude. Now, here at The Last Symptom, 
we've all learned and we know very well that you cannot control your feelings, right? So you can't just choose to feel gratitude, right? You can't just choose to like click a switch and feel gratitude about things. But what he's really talking about here, which, you know, I don't want to beat up on the guy or anything, but uh, the nuances of language for my audience especially, and definitely the general audience, matter. And the nuance here is that what he's really talking about is thinking, thinking in uh, grateful ways, right? So you can't just choose to feel gratitude, but you can choose to think in grateful ways, right? And think about a grateful things. And uh, of course, that will have a direct result on how you begin to feel. So there's no just, oh, okay, I'm going to feel, I'm going to practice feeling gratitude. You can't do that. <laughs> it's, it's at the very foundation of what we talk about here. You can't control what you feel or how you feel. And if you're not feeling gratitude, it's not like you're doing something wrong. So, but we're, we are talking about thinking in grateful ways. You do have full control over what you continue thinking about and how you continue thinking about things. So that is within your power. Glenn Fox, this neuroscientist, goes on to say, it's very similar to working out in that the more you practice, the better you get. The more you practice, the easier it is to feel grateful when you need it. Well, again, he's talking about thinking uh, gratefully, not just turning on some switch and boom, now I'm feeling grateful. No, you... The way you do that is you is you choose how to think, what you're going to think about, and then how you're going to think about it. So you think about things in a grateful way, and the more you see the reasons you have to be grateful, the re, then you really will start to feel grateful. Remember, every feeling is preceded by a thought. So even though we don't have uh, the power to control what we feel. We do have the power to control the thoughts that give birth to the things we feel. How gratitude changes your brain. It says uh, gratitude has distinct neurobiological effects included in brain regions associated with interpersonal bonding and stress relief. Uh, the neuroscientist uh, Glenn Fox grew deeply interested in gratitude. Get this after his mother's death from ovarian cancer. This is very interesting. I wanted to share this with you because uh, a lot of folks in my audience uh, have either experienced some real you know, tragedy and, and some really bleak times or are currently experiencing real gloom in their life. And it was interesting to me that uh, this neuroscientist, Glenn Fox, uh, he became interested in gratitude out of a tragedy. Isn't that interesting? What did I say we have control over? What we think about and how we choose to think about a thing. And it seems to me that from this tragedy, he took an interesting, he went in an interesting direction, didn't he, with his thoughts and focus. During his mom's illness, 
he would send her studies on the benefits of gratitude in cancer patients and she kept a gratitude journal in her final years is that something that's missing from your life a gratitude journal um, writing is very important for me in my personal life it's also obviously very important to my work here with the last symptom um, but this uh, you know so it's something that I recommend to people but this kind of fine-tunes it even more doesn't it you're not just writing about anything you're keeping a journal where you're writing about things that you are thinking gratefully about a gratitude journal I'd never heard I'd never heard of such a thing uh, when I read this and but I liked it I liked it when I come across it in one example 92 adults with advanced cancer engaged in mindful gratitude journaling or routine journaling so do two different types of journaling after seven days those who kept gratitude journals had significant improvements in measures of anxiety depression and spiritual well-being so much so that the researchers concluded that mindful gratitude journaling could positively affect the state of suffering psychological distress and quality of life with patients of patients with advanced cancer so again maybe something that's just right down your alley you know give it some thought grateful people the article goes ahead to say tend to recover faster from trauma and injury we're talking about physical trauma and injury grateful people tend to recover faster why are they more grateful they choose to think about in grateful ways uh, fox told the pulse they tend to have better and closer personal relationships and may even just have improved health overall as it turns out putting your gratitude in words can be an effective way to improve your health among 293 adults who sought psychotherapy services those who engaged in gratitude writing reported significantly better emotional health after four and twelve weeks than those who didn't write or who just wrote about their thoughts and feelings interesting Fox also explained that benefits associated with gratitude include get this list of things better sleep you having trouble sleeping maybe you need to keep a gratitude journal uh, more exercise you having trouble being motivated to exercise maybe you need to keep a gratitude journal reduce symptoms of physical pain lower levels of inflammation lower blood pressure and a host of other things we associate with better health including improved resilience it's likely that gratitude leads to benefits via multiple mechanisms not only by improving life satisfaction but also by contributing to an increase in healthy activities and a willingness to seek help for health problems those who are grateful have even been found to have a better sense of the meaning of life by being able to perceive good family function and peer relationships 
Let's see here. It says gratitude is known to facilitate improvements in healthy eating. Boy, maybe I need to keep <laughs> a gratitude journal. And it benefits depression by enhancing self-esteem and well-being. Feeling grateful can help you sleep better and longer, perhaps, by improving your thoughts prior to sleep. Uh, yeah, see, that that's what they get wrong there. Let's read that again. Feeling grateful can help you sleep better and longer, perhaps by improving your thoughts prior to sleep. Don't they have that backwards, don't they? They've got that totally backwards. What precedes our feelings? What precedes everything we feel? Our thoughts. They're saying, feel first, and then that'll improve your thoughts. That ain't the way it works. But like I said, otherwise there's a lot of good in this article. The way it works is you choose what and how you're going to think. And you choose to think about things you're grateful about, or you choose about choose to think about things and look at it in ways you can be grateful for those things. You do that, then you'll feel more grateful, won't you? And then you'll sleep better. The article goes on to say people who are more grateful tend to be less materialistic and less likely to suffer from burnout. Among teenagers, the simple practice of keeping a gratitude journal significantly reduced materialism and the negative effect of materialism on generosity. Those who wrote down what they were grateful for donated 60% more of their earnings to charity, for instance. Think about that. Those who wrote down what they were grateful for donated 60% more of their earnings to charity. That's kind of incredible. That's not like 12% more, 5% more. That's 60% more. The neuroscientist says, I think gratitude can be a lot like a muscle, like a trained response or skill that we develop over time as we've learned to recognize abundance and gifts and things that we didn't previously notice as being important, he said. And that itself is its own skill that can be practiced and manifested over time. Rather than a magic bullet, it's the regular practice of of being grateful. Again, we're not talking about choosing what, what we feel and how we feel. What, we're, what he's really talking about is it's the regular practice of thinking in grateful ways. That's the skill. Thinking in grateful ways. And the feelings of gratefulness will follow. But that's what uh, makes the difference according to this neuroscientist Fox. He says, you know, it's like water cutting rock through a canyon. It ain't done all at once, and it's just steady practice is where you start to get things. Now, here's two gratitude experiences or practices that you can try in your daily life. And uh, according to this article, number one, you probably already guessed it, keeping a gratitude journal. And number two, expressing gratitude. With a gratitude journal, here's what you do. You write down lists of what you're grateful for on a regular basis. So I reckon you could just keep it by your bed or someplace where you regular, regular, regularly sit down 
and uh, you know right next to the TV remote control perhaps expressing gratitude the second part the second recommendation is exactly what it sounds like it's you're expressing grateful f- things to others such as saying thank you or writing gratitude letters uh, these gratitude letters we called those uh, greeting cards when I was a kid which you then read to the recipients now they're bringing this other professor his name's Robert Emons and he's a professor of psychology at the University of California in an article he wrote for Greater Good magazine he advises that you remember hard times in your life which remind you how much you have to be grateful for now boy that I'll tell you folks that's not hard for me when I think back to my the events surrounding my big old borderline personality disorder crisis and the, the hard times that followed and uh, I just I do not have a hard time making that contrast but I tell you it works so I, I underlined it in the article because it, it works you know something as simple as just me uh, being able to go and put gas in my truck without fretting about whether putting gas in my trunk is going to mean I'm not going to be able to eat later in the week just a huge thing I mean these these are things that I once took for granted and then I had this terribly uh, difficult run in my life I don't take those things for granted no more so that's his advice Re- remember hard times in your life that will remind you how much you have to be grateful for now another thing is appreciate what it means to be human by tuning into and appreciating your sense of touch sight smell hearing Uh, use visual reminders including people to trigger gratitude I reckon so for like uh, photographs and stuff like that you know I've been going through some bunch of my old uh, media and pictures and stuff like that especially people in my past and uh, feel tremendous gratitude for them of course if you want to get started today well here it goes keep a notebook by your bedside and make a point to jot down one or two things that you're grateful for each night before bed and express gratitude to others often such as writing quick thank you notes to friends so uh, I guess that's timely given the time of year we're in and everybody's thinking about New Year's resolutions and uh, being gracious to others and stuff like that so hope you enjoyed that Let's talk about the concept of good and bad. You know, when I was uh, starting through my recovery, my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder, one thing I come up against was I was thinking about, you know, all that my dad had done to me and my mom, mom too. You know, I, <clears throat> they were a team, and that's the way parents work. They are a team. So there's never just one, there's, no, there's never one bad guy and one good guy in the parent uh, dynamic when we're talking about abused or emotionally, ne- emotionally neglected children. Both of them were a team. But, you know, my dad's the easy target, and he's the one who did the most blatant and obvious abuses. Uh, but, you know, in my own recovery, I'd often think about him, 
how can I hold him accountable to these things? And what is the proper way for me to view him? Is, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy in these things? And, and then I'd look at myself and realize that I had done much of these same things. I had grown up, got my own family, and did much of these same things that he had done. Well, I, I didn't want to be a bad person. I wanted to be a good person. So how can I look at my father as being bad and uh, you know look at myself and uh, want to see myself as good it seemed like a contradiction well that was when I had to have a serious discussion with myself and a serious analysis with myself about what defines a good person and a bad person and I wanted to share some of that you with you today uh, this is not a comprehensive discussion about this it's just a brief discussion about this but it'll give you something to think about and then later when we talk about it in you know greater detail maybe it'll be easier for you to swallow here's what I come here's the conclusion I come to about what determines if a person is good or bad very briefly the thing that determines this is one's willingness or sincerity combined with capacity and you and I have talked a lot about the differences between capacity and ability when we're talking about ability we're just talking you know we're talking about what you're able to do that's ability when you say I can do this as you know many of you know that I'm bilingual I speak Spanish in Spanish the word for can is based around ability it's what you are able to do. On the other hand, capability and capacity is something entirely different. And I've illustrated it in you know, 19 kajillion trillion times, but I will do it again today for anybody who's new to the program. Um, for example, you know, an example I use, an easy one, is that uh, I'm unable to play the trombone. I, I think we just talked about this last week, in fact. I'm unable to play the trombone, but I am capable of playing the trombone. What's that mean? It means that the, the possibility does exist within inside, inside myself. If at any time I should choose to take advantage of my capacity as a person to play the trombone, I can learn and I can do it. So that might not seem so profound on the surface but the more you think about it the more profound it becomes basically what it means is we can expect things of people that they are unable to do and it's not unfair or unreasonable for us to do so we apply that to ourselves and we apply that to others and that's just the way it works you know we send our kids to school every year precisely so that they will do things that they're unable to do. My daughter, uh, a, you know, a year ago, she was unable to count to 100. She went to school. Now she counts to 100. Why? Because she was capable of counting to 100, even if she was unable to. When we look at ourselves in recovery, we say to ourselves, well, um, 
I cannot hold myself. I can't expect something of myself. It's not reasonable to do that or fair to expect something of myself that I'm literally incapable of doing. So if, if it is impossible to recover from borderline personality disorder, then very reasonably I can't expect myself to do that, can I? Fortunately, full, authentic, and permanent recovery from emotional disorders, which is what borderline personality disorder is, is not something we're incapable of. Let me say that in another way. We are capable, people are capable of recovering from emotional disorders such as borderline personality disorder. Therefore, it is reasonable and it's the only healthy expectation for us to have as individuals when we when we realize that we do have an emotional disorder the only reasonable conclusion there is to expect ourselves to rid ourselves of that emotional disorder so you can see then that this finer understanding of the differences between capacity and ability are really important because they they define for us what is reasonable and, and unreasonable as far as our expectations for ourselves and for others. If my daughter is incapable of learning math or of learning how to count to 100, it's not reasonable for me to send her to school and expect it from her, is it? Um, however, if she's simply unable to count to 100, but she's capable of counting to 100, then it's totally fair and reasonable for me to send her to school and expect that from her. That's an example of us applying that to other people. Now let's apply it to ourselves. If I am unable to uh, treat people well, uh, not if I'm unable to stop abusing the people I claim to care about, if I'm unable to stop uh, frivolously and irresponsibly spending money, if I'm unable to, uh, you you name it, uh, stop cheating on my girlfriend, uh, if I'm unable to do any of these things, but I'm capable of them, then it is reasonable to hold ourselves to a different set of standards, right, than if we were incapable of doing those things. This understanding of capability versus ability allows us to set very high expectations for ourselves and for others and expect them to completely live up to those uh, expectations. And and know that we're being fair and reasonable at the same time. And on the other hand, it allows us to identify things that they're simply that other people are simply unable to do or that we're simply unable to do and say, "All right, well but that's not an excuse. You still got to do it." Then on the other hand, it allows us to identify things that's totally beyond anything that we're capable of, you know? And then we can let ourselves off the hook there. And we can let others off the hook there. Well, I think last week I gave this uh, real exaggerated example of uh, me dropping a marble off a boat. And uh, 
because you work for me, expecting you to swim down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, just in your swim trunks, find that marble and bring it up to me, and you arguing with me. But I, it's impossible. It's impossible. Well, because it's impossible, I say, well, then it's not a fair expectation. I can't can't expect something of you fairly and reasonably. That is literally, it's beyond your capacity as a human being. Now, you're probably wondering how this all fi- figures in to concepts of good and bad. Well, think about this. There are no perfect people anywhere on our planet. So, you and I, we're one of something like 7 billion people. And every single one of us, all 7 billion of us, are all making mistakes and falling short every day. So think about that. 7 billion people, every single one of us, doing stupid things, negatively impacting others, either intentionally or unintentionally, and falling short of being the type of person that we wish we could be. So there's context for starting out in this conversation about good and bad. So then, if this is true, what are the relevant qualifying factors for what makes people good or bad? For what qualifies a person as being good or bad? What sets one person apart from another if we're all making the same dumb mistakes and bumbling through life and trying to finally figure it all out and get it right sometime before we croak? Well, you remember what I said? What what defines the difference? It's willingness or sincerity combined with capacity. So, looking at my father's example and my example, when faced with this tremendous, tremendously hard and painful results in my life, what was I willing to do? What was I genuinely willing to do? I was genuinely willing to look inward, honestly, and then apply what? My capacities. I was willing to hold myself, you know, my expectations for myself according to my capacities, not according to my abilities. What was my, what was, what has been my father's example so far throughout his entire life, by the way? not just in these last 10 years, but in his entire life. Number one, never a willingness to look inward honestly. Oh, there's a willingness to look at himself, but not honestly. There's no sincerity there in in his analysis of himself. And number two, what does he hold himself to? What is the the limit he puts on himself for his the expectations he has of himself? what he's able or not able to do. Not what his capacity is or his capabilities are, but what he is currently able or unable to do. Some intellectuals subscribe to the notion that there's no such thing as bad people. In fact, uh, that psychologist in Arizona that I often talk about as being the, the guy who caused me to have these tremendous revelations and breakthroughs that I later built upon and which led to my authentic recovery. 
he subscribed to that notion. He believed that there were only people damaged by their environment when they were children. And he concluded that uh, if you were to go back in a time machine and change things for them, they would uh, turn out to be good people, and then the world would have no bad people. But uh, that's not true. He's wrong. Uh, you know, he did a lot for me, but he and these other intellectuals are wrong. They're ignoring some extremely relevant factors in order to arrive at such a simplified notion. For example, they fail to take into consideration free will. Free will. Some people just choose to be bad. It's by choice. Uh, you know, even if you want to factor my dad into this thing, uh, every day he's choosing not to do the same work that I did. So that's free will. He doesn't have to. Uh, and, and by the way, I often talk about free will as the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. It's just a much more detailed explanation of what free will truly implies and and all the broader implications of it. But they're basically they're one and the same. So that's how he chooses to use his free will. I. Uh, you know, held myself to consequences, held myself to expectations and consequences. I, that's the way I chose to use my free will. There are people uh, who choose to be bad. I've told you that this is, uh, uh, you know, in the past when we've talked about uh, infidelity, you know, and I've, I've explained Tom Blue in the face that it's not, in, in and of itself, it is not a, a reflection of emotional disorder or of emotional unhealth. Perfectly healthy people choose to have affairs uh, perfectly healthy people choose to rob banks perfectly healthy people choose to cheat on their income tax perfectly healthy people choose lots of things uh, so totally unrelated as far as morality goes but uh, that's free will it's you know I get to choose you get to choose. We all get to make these choices for ourselves, and nobody will stop us. I used to say that nobody can stop us, but that's if you're a God-fearing person, you, you don't believe that's true. Obviously, God could stop you. He just doesn't. He allows you to make whatever choice for yourself you want to make. So free will is one thing that these intellectuals fared, uh, fail to take into consideration. And what's the other one? They fail to take into consideration the principles of capacity versus ability. It's so important into it's so important related to the overall balance of of everything we talk about here. That's why I've been talking about it a lot lately. In short, whatever you have the capacity for and which you should do or should cease doing you know stop doing for example emotionally and physically abusing your children maybe you can't stop yourself but that's only because you haven't gotten to the root causes of these things you have the capacity to not be abusive to those that you claim to care about 
you have that capacity now it's a matter of do you have the willingness to analyze yourself in brutally honest ways and change what needs to be changed so anytime a person should do a thing and he or she has the capacity to do a thing but he or she chooses not to do that then that person is choosing wrong over right bad over good this innate aspect of being a human being the capacities built into us is the relevant qualifying measure for what can reasonably be expected of you your capacity is an inherent part of you which is not at all affected by what you are able or unable to do it's not affected by anything it's an inherent possibility that exists so again just another example to try to bring it home a little bit I'm unable to speak Japanese but I have the capacity to do it if I make the effort and I do the work that's required eventually I could be speaking Japanese so one's painful childhood is not a legitimate or acceptable excuse for doing bad now as an adult or for continuing to do bad as an adult ignorance not a legitimate or acceptable excuse for doing wrong what one is currently unable to do is not a legitimate or acceptable excuse for doing wrong why because of free will and capacity free will the law of individual inherent rights responsibility and authority combined with capacity despite all of a person's ignorance and the way they were raised and all these things once they become an adult and they have free will they have the choice to decide how to use that free will in combination with their capacities so people have the choice to use their capacities to not do wrong to educate themselves to behave differently and what does it all come down to caring if you want to strip away everything all the difficult stuff we talk about that's what it comes down to do you care or not why has my father not done the same work that I have done because he doesn't care to if he did care to what would we see he we if he truly cared to we would see him doing the same work that I have had to do to be where I am now it's really what it is that willingness you know when we talk about that willingness or that sincerity it really it's just care do you care saying you care uh, means nothing when a person cares what is followed by a person genuinely caring about a thing then there's action right there is effort right if I genuinely care about building <laughs> my daughter's been after me to build her a treehouse and I know it's gonna be a big job so I've been putting it off if I genuinely cared about having that treehouse built um, by the end of the weekend guess what it would be built by the end of the weekend don't tell her 
I just don't care that much yet. But once I do, it will get built. Doing bad and being bad, it's important to recognize are two different things. Doing bad things does not automatically by itself mean you are a bad person. Because remember, you're surrounded by 7 billion other people. I'm one of them. And every one of us are doing bad things. So again, just the fact that you're doing bad things does not make you a bad person. What factors separate good people from bad people? Willingness or sincerity, same thing, combined with capacity. What are you capable of doing and are you willing to do that? A parent who abuses his children is doing a very bad thing. His ignorance and poor emotional health are not legitimate excuses for the mistreatment of his own innocent children who he's been given a great responsibility and privilege to care for and protect. So not only is an abusive parent guilty of mistreating another human being, you know, it would be bad enough in itself if you're, if you're just out abusing a, a person. But what, are we, what people are we particularly talking about? In these situations, we're talking about people who have specifically the responsibility of caring for and protecting their children from exactly these things. So imagine that. You're given the responsibility to protect at all costs your children from abuse and harm and what do you do instead you are the abuse and harm do you see how disgusting that is it's kind of like a an abhorrent um, what's the word I'm looking for well it's just an abhorrent disgusting betrayal you know the very people tasked with caring for and protecting the children from these things are the ones literally doing the thing that they're supposed to be protecting them from. They're the ones causing the, that, that harm and that abuse. There, there's a word for it, but it, it's just escaping me right now. It's uh, it's like t- totally backwards. You know, it's like if uh, it, it's a perversion is what it is. It's like a perversion of the thing of the way things are supposed to be. A total perversion and betrayal. So, you know, we just described this parent who's doing a very bad thing by abusing his or her children. But does this sort of wrong committed by parents automatically classify them as bad people? You know, is my father a bad person specifically because of what he did? No, he's a bad person because of what he's not done since. Right, that's something we're thinking about. I did the same things that my father did, but when I realized what I was doing, and I suffered enough consequences, what did I do then? Well, I figured out what the root causes of it were, and I and I eliminated those root causes, and now I don't treat people like that. So it's not just the wrong that a person is, you know, committing. 
that automatically classifies parents as being bad people. Committing wrong in itself is not what determines if somebody is a bad person. What determines uh, if a person is bad or not is if he or she doesn't care. Doesn't care. So therefore doesn't use his or her free will to be willing or sincere to use their capacity to identify what is wrong and change it. That's, that's the defining thing. What would be required for a person to use this capacity to change? Well, the first thing we've already talked about is sincerity, willingness, genuineness. A genuine willingness to make a totally honest self-examination to care that's what it would require for people to really uh, tap into and uh, take advantage of their capacity to change are there sincere disingenuous people who simply don't care yes there are we that's free will And, and so far that has been my father he hasn't been sincere he hasn't been genuine he hasn't been willing and uh, he hasn't used his capacity to identify these things and change there are people who purposely choose to do bad and they enjoy it there are bad people in the world this is a lesson I try to teach my daughter all the time because she bless her little heart she likes to think that everybody's just got the best Uh, motives and best intentions and everything you and I know that's not true Um, and uh, and so that's that's where uh, the old psychologist and I deviate as far as uh, our conclusions on things if if I have to hold my father if I have to consider my father as a bad person based simply on what he did as a parent then I would be a bad person too and I know that's not true I'm not a bad person but it's only not true because of how uh, the example that my father and I the way that you know our life our choices have have differed right he he has not been willing to analyze himself and in an honest genuine sincere way and say to himself I really truly want to see Uh, what is allowing me to be abusive to the people I claim to care about identify those things and truly fix them no matter how painful they might be to see and to uh, and to um, look at and accept are there on the other hand I did that work and it was painful and it was humbling and it was brutal but I was willing to do that why because I cared it was something I really cared about I really cared about not wanting to be the same type of parent that my father was. And uh, then I set my expectations not on what I was able to do or unable to do, but on what my capacity was, what I was capable of doing. So there's our conversation about good and bad. That's what, uh, di- that's what uh, distinguishes a good person from a bad person. Do they care for real? You know, and when we t- were talking about do they care, 
Uh, we we're just talking about willingness. Are they willing? And when we're talking about are they willing, we're just talking about are they sincere, genuine. And the principle of capacity versus ability. It's not what we're able to do. That's not the the measurement that we hold ourselves to. That we create our expectations for ourselves and others around. Not what we're able to do. Not what they're able to do. It's what are they capable of doing. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we know what is reasonable and unreasonable as far as expectations go, doesn't it? So, I hope you and all have enjoyed this conversation. It's very late now, Thursday night for me, and I'm going to take a couple days off. And uh, you know, but I'll be on the uh, the last symptom locals group there, or uh, education group there on locals. www.thelastsymptom.locals.com. Hope to see you there. You folks have a wonderful, wonderful few days here as everybody's out on their vacations and celebrating and doing those things you guys stay safe and uh i look forward to talking to you again soon by the way i forgot to mention that the uh, the podcast now is now available as a video which i make available on rumble and youtube and as you can imagine the video often appears after the uh, podcast audio appears and that's simply because when I get done recording this thing I have to uh, edit the audio and then I have to edit the video and editing and uploading the video takes a lot longer than than the audio does so that's the story I'm sticking to it I'll see you guys soon (music) 